We're glad you're here. Look forward to a really good teaching series. I know that we have a good lineup of folks that are coming to be with us. Uh, Tom Piedla is going to be coming next week, and I think uh, Marcus Kaiser from Holy Comptor will be with us as well. We're going to take a look through the sweep of the Bible and talk about who Jesus is and what He came to do. But today we have as our special guest and speaker, Father Bill Owens, who is at St. Mary Magdalene Anglican Church in Camden. Bill hails from James Island in the Charleston area. So um, there's considerable power and influence coming up to the podium in just a minute. And I'm tickled pink to tell all of you, this is exciting, that uh, he has now uh, gotten his uh, a certificate. Well, it's actually, well, it's a correspondence course, but it's a very a special one. It's on assertiveness training and public speaking. <laughs> and we are all benefits, beneficiaries of this great uh, accomplishment. Uh, Bill's a great man, he's a church planter, uh, and you got to tip your hat to, to folks like that, tip of the spear people, enthusiasm, energy, patience that knows no bounds, whatever the Lord's up to, uh, folks like Bill want to, you know, want to seek close up front to see what the Lord's doing. So uh, we're so happy to have him here. He's going to talk to us today about uh, Jesus as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It struck me every time that we say the Nicene Creed, um, we say that he was who he is and he came and he did all these things and he said it as uh, in fulfillment of the scriptures. And then we speak about the Holy Spirit in the Nicene Creed who spoke through the prophets. Um, anytime in the New Testament that they're talking about the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament. So, there's a grand sweep and a grand vision, and it's amazing. And Bill's going to open up some of that uh, wonder in God's Word. So, Bill, come on up and let's welcome him. Bill, Father Bill Owens. Well, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. Quicken our hearts, open our eyes and our ears in our hearts to see things today that maybe we have not seen before. All of this we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now I've got 20 minutes. 20 minutes is what Ken told me and I promised him I would try to stick to this. I know you guys are on a schedule. I have 20 minutes to cover um, seven full pages of Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. There's seven pages. And and I'm not going to do that because if I did, it would be like feeding you through a fire hose. Right? So I'm going to highlight a few things, but I want to open with a story. And this is a true story, which, which is way better than a sea story or a fairy tale. So here's the true story. I drove up here today, and I'm quite familiar with this church and with your rector, a very dear friend of mine and a former youth minister as I am. I was 19 years in youth ministry before the Lord called me to uh, ordain ministry. I'm not sure to punish me or reward me. I'm still, the jury's still out on that. But, but as I drove up, of course, the deacon greeted me, and, and I said, I'm here with my vestments. 
um, because Ken had told me I was going to celebrate. And she said, well, I think Luke and I are already planning on celebrating. I said, well, good, good, because I did a service this morning, and that means I get a break, and I still get a free lunch, and I get to talk to you guys. So I said, I'm going to put my vestments up, and then I'm going to go see Luke. And she said, she said, well, Luke's over in the, in the, uh, in the room studying, getting ready. And I said, well, right, well, I'll put up my vestments. I walked over and I, I went to the front door. Actually, I went to the back door and the back door was locked. So I said, well, if the back door's locked, I better go to the front door. I walked to the front door and I walked right up to the door and I grabbed the handle and I pushed the door in and the door didn't budge. <laughs> I pushed the door again a little harder. Well, the, the door didn't budge. And, and I could see that it was locked at the top. And I'm thinking to myself, this is how my brain works. Who would lock a door at the top? That doesn't make sense. Why didn't they just set the deadbolt? So I knocked on the door. Your music minister comes running up and he says, don't push on the door anymore, Father Bill, because we gotta, you, you just got to push the button next to the door. Are you ready? Look for the sign. That's what he said to me. Look for the sign. And I, and I looked, and the sign said, push this button, and the door will open. See, my problem is I'm not a sign looker. Are you all are sign lookers? Like when you walk up someplace, you, do you actually look around before you push the door? Do you look around and go, okay, I know there's going to be a sign here somewhere that tells me what I'm supposed to do. I'm an offensive lineman. When I get to a door, if it's... If it's closed, I open it. If I have to push it hard enough to open it, I open the door. I move things. That's what I do. That's, that's the way the Lord made me. That's why I played offensive line years ago at the Citadel. I say that to you because it's my job this morning to point out to you how many places in the Old Testament God predicted exactly how he was going to save the world through his son. And, and the first time I read scripture, and, and keep in mind, I didn't read the Bible till I was 40 years old. That's 25 years ago now. I read it in six months. I read it in order, Old Testament to New Testament. And then I read it again in a different translation. And then I read it again in a different translation. I couldn't put the book down. I still haven't put the book down because it is the most life-changing reading I've ever read. And the more I read the Old Testament, the more I saw Jesus everywhere. Not just in these messianic passages like the one we read this morning in Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, well, that talks about John the Baptist. That talks about being the precursor to Jesus, John the Baptist being the greatest and last Old Testament prophet. But I don't think that Jews really memorized the prophets, guys. I think that they were more into the story of Abraham. If you want to take a look at a hero in the history of Israel, the Israelites, by the time Jesus hits the ground running, the Israelites have almost created Abraham as a god. 
He is worshipped. As a matter of fact, they argue with him that, that Jesus is not greater than their father Abraham. Well, so I started to look at the call of Abraham. And this is what the Lord gave me for you. If you have a problem with it, take it up with him. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to be obedient. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you sh shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, which is now what we call modern-day Iraq. That's where Abraham's from. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions, which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. They set out for the land of Canaan, and thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite, the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. Now, Abraham gets credit. Because the Lord told him to go. And he went. Now, if it had been you and me, here's what I would have said. Sure, I'll go. Where am I going? How long is it going to, how long is it going to take me to get there? What are you going to give me to go along the way so that I don't starve to death? Because that's the way my mind works. I'm sure yours does too. Abraham gets credit because when the Lord told him to go, he went. And when the Lord promised him, he didn't promise Abraham anything. He promised it to the next generations. That's delayed gratification. We're terrible at that in America today. We want it now. I want it now. I don't want it for four generations from now. Give me what I got coming right now. Abraham didn't say that. Now, the next part I'm about to tell you I'm going to do from memory. Because I think God loves a good story because it sticks with you. And if you remember this story, then you don't need a book to read it. Abraham goes through the land of Canaan, and there's a, there's a drought and a famine. So he goes to Egypt. He takes his wife with him. And he says to her, you know, you're a pretty good looking woman. We get to Egypt. Pharaoh might like you so much that he's going to kill me to take you as his wife. So let's tell Pharaoh, let's tell the people in Egypt, you're my sister, not my wife. Right? Is that, is that true? Isn't that what the story says? Okay. Here's how my brain works. Where did God tell him to do that? God did not tell Abraham to do that. Abraham came up with that on his own. Well, it, it comes out to be true. Pharaoh does. 
He looks at Sarai and he says, oh, good looking woman, I'm going to marry her. All kinds of bad stuff happens in Egypt because the Lord's not pleased because Abraham has given Sarah to somebody else as a wife and, and he's kind of interrupted God's plan. So he, he brings these plagues on Egypt and they end up running Abraham and Sarah out of Egypt on a rail. Are you with me? Now they get back to the, to, the, to the land of promise and Abraham turns around a lot and says, okay, the land's not healthy enough to support us both. So you go to the plains, I'd suggest Sodom, that seems like good thinking. And, and, and if you go to the plains, I'll go somewhere else. And, and if you don't want to go to the plains, I'll go to the plains. Lot chooses to go to Sodom and Abraham goes somewhere else. Immediately my brain says, where did God tell him to do that? Where is it that God said, Abraham, I can't support you and Lot, split up. He did. Abraham came up with that in his best thinking. Well, we know how that story works out. Not so well for Sodom and Gomorrah. But, but in the process of two really bad choices, God still redeems those choices and keeps his plan on track. Isn't that amazing how he does that? Okay. Sodom and Gomorrah's done. God comes and visits Abraham and he says, you're going to have a son. Sarah's pretty old. Sarah heard God say that. She laughed. She, am I lying? She laughed. She's in the tent. She laughs. She says, like, I'm going to have a child. I mean, I'm 80-something years old. And, and God says, this time next year, you're going to have a child. Sarah said, no, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to get Hagar. And Hagar is my servant. She's going to lay with Abram and give him an heir named Ishmael. Hold on to that name. It's going to come up to haunt us here in a minute. So they have Ishmael. And a year later, sure enough, Abram and Sarah get pregnant and they have the son of promise. His name is Isaac. Now we got a problem. Because Ishmael and Hagar are a thorn in Sarah's side. She doesn't like the fact that she made a mistake. She wants to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. As a matter of fact, she wants them to die. Abram prays for Ishmael to be spared. Doesn't he? What did God tell him? I'll spare him. But he will be like a wild ass. He's going to be a big problem for you. Abram said, I don't care. Spare him. Okay. Where did God tell Abram to do any of this? It's Abram's best thinking that got him here. That, by the way, is normally the first line I use with prisoners or alcoholics. Your best thinking got you here. What are you willing to do to get away from here? A little bit later on, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him. Your only son. Abraham gets a servant, collects the wood, puts it on a mule, 
takes his son, goes to where the Lord tells him to go, binds him up, puts him on a stone altar, and is ready to cut his throat when God stares him. How much faith does it take to do that? How much faith does it take to know that this son is the son God promised you to bless the entire world for generations to come? And now he's asking you to sacrifice him. How much faith does it take? Could you do it? Could you do it? Mamas will answer this differently than daddies. But ultimately, we'll all get a little uncomfortable thinking about this one. Now, here's my point. We have an unbelievable story of Abraham and Sarah and Lot and, and, and the, the beginning of Judaism. If you were writing a book, wouldn't you have cleaned this up a little bit? <laughs> I would have. I would I'd have taken some stuff out because Abraham looks like an absolute bonehead. <laughs> but maybe the message for us is God is so awesome that you can't screw up his plan. If you're faithful, he'll take your mistakes, he'll redeem them, he'll bless them, and you can't sin at a great enough level to stop God's righteousness. Now that, for me, is good news. And then, when the time comes for God's Son to be sacrificed on a cross. What if the Jews who knew that story well enough would recognize, oh my goodness, this is the story of Abraham. God was showing us through Abraham how much he loved us, that he's willing to sacrifice his son to save us. And that immediately tells me we're dealing with a different God because I would not have my son catch a cold for anybody in this room. I wouldn't. I love my children till I realize that love sometimes has to be sacrificial. And the greatest thing that I can be as a Christian is to answer to call, the call to go, to be obedient even when I don't know where he's sending me. And by the way, I have learned in my 25 years of working for Jesus Christ, he is not concerned at all with how comfortable I feel. Nor is he concerned with how comfortable you feel. Well, that's the story of Abraham. Father so willing to be obedient to God that he would sacrifice his own son. And a God so willing to save his people that he does sacrifice his own son. How did the Jews not get that? 
Same way I didn't get it for 45 years. The same way I didn't get it this morning when I pushed on the door instead of reading the sign. <laughs> That's how we work. Now, the story of Joseph, which, how am I doing on time? How am I doing on time? Listen, you will not hurt my feelings. If you've got to go, just get up and go. Okay? The story of Joseph. Joseph, coat of many colors Joseph, you know, the favorite of his father, the youngest son who says to his older brothers, nana, 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 I'm going to rule over you. That's what he did. They got so mad, they were jealous, they plotted to kill him. Reuben, his oldest brother, said, we can't kill him. We can't kill him. Why? We can throw him in a well. We can take his coat of many colors and smear some blood all over it and tell that he's dead. And oh, by the way, we'll sell him to, are you ready? We'll sell him to the Ishmaelites. Do you remember? Ishmael, Abraham. Uh-oh, now we're tying everything together. Do you know what the Ishmaelites later became? That's Islam. A wild ass. Maybe God does know what he's talking about. Well, let's just leave that aside for a minute. So, so, it, it, so Joseph, who is, who is, has got huge favor with God. That's what scripture says. God, God so blessed Joseph that Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, sold to the Israelites. He goes to Egypt. He ends up in Potiphar's house. And, and the favor of the Lord's on him, and he becomes in charge of all of Potiphar's house to the point where Potiphar's wife falls in love with him and makes a sexual advance towards him. He rejects it. She accuses him of rape, and he ends up in prison because Potiphar, by the way, is in charge of the prison for Pharaoh. Joseph is blessed, isn't he? Man, he is raking in the spiritual blessings now. And while he's in prison... A guy who's in prison with him tells him a dream. And Joseph tells him what the dream means. And he says to the guy, you're going to get out of prison. And when you do, don't forget me. Well, the guy got out of prison and he immediately forgot Joseph until the king had a dream. And then the guy said, I remember this guy named Joseph. If I tell him this dream, he's going to make me look really good. So I'll tell the king about him. King brings Joseph in front of him. Joseph tells the king what his dream means because none of his sorcerers, none of his magicians, none of his priests can tell him. And the king is so impressed that within a matter of a year, Joseph, a Hebrew, is the highest ranking human being in Egypt. Now, am I the only one here that does not see the irony in that? Isn't that amazing? And in the course of the next 14 years, he oversees all of Egypt until the famine hits the land that he is from. And his brothers are starving. And they have to go to Egypt to get food because Joseph was the smart guy. He stored it all up. So they go to Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph. And he sees him. And he doesn't kill him. <laughs> wow. I don't know how he didn't kill him because I would have smoked him. <laughs> but he doesn't kill him. <clears throat> Ultimately, Joseph cleans himself up. 
shaves every hair on his body, puts on the robes of an Egyptian priest, and goes to his brothers. They didn't recognize him. Let's fast forward to the New Testament for a minute. He came to his own, and they knew him not. How many times in the Old Testament do we mention the term redeemer, kinsman? That's Joseph. What if God gave the Jews a story about Joseph so they'd recognize that sometimes we don't see the Savior who's right in front of us? Guys, I've, I've done this as a sermon that lasted already almost 40 minutes in an Episcopal church and nobody complained. I think that in itself is a miracle. <laughs> you take a look at the story of Moses. You take a look at the story of David. You take a look at the story of Elijah. In every one of these patriarchs, you're going to find a prototype of the Messiah. That that if you actually take it and apply it, it just crystallizes a God that we can't possibly be like even if we used eight of the big names of Israel. But by using those big names, we could actually begin to get a picture of him and we would begin to understand that this God is not like us. His ways are not our ways. If you're sitting in that chair this morning and you say to me, I understand everything God is doing in my life, one of you is absolutely useless. If you understand everything God is doing in your life, somebody's wrong. But if you trust him with the faith of Abraham, there's nothing you can't do. If you can forgive people with the forgiveness of Joseph, wow, there's nothing you can do. If you have the zeal for God that David had, wow, nothing could stand in your way. Think about it. All of those heroes, broken, sinful human beings, the hero of this story is God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. From the beginning of the book to the end of the book, the hero of this book is God. This book is not about us. It's about Him. And we take our bit parts in the greatest play ever written. And that's Advent. So I asked my people last weekend to spend the week, this week, examining their sin. Because this is the week we do that. And the reason we do that is so that we'll realize we do need Jesus. I need him way more today than I did Sunday. I preached a great sermon, I thought. <laughs> the Lord gave it to me. I always give him credit. But the fact of the matter is, that if, if we can't take a look and judge our own selves, we have no need for a Savior. We're good enough. 
How good is good enough? I'm going to leave all of these six or seven pages of, of um, Messianic prophecies for Beth. You can go pick them up from her. It's a great Bible study. I, I highly recommend to you a study on the patriarchs. You could also do it in the, in the, in the context of a study that the task force on biblical literacy came out with in 2009 out of the Anglican Church in North America in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. It's called the E100. It is the essential 100 verses in the Bible that gives you the skeleton on which to hang God's salvation story, the big story, the meta-narrative of how he saves us. It's 50 from the Old Testament and 50 from the New. It's a great Bible study. I've done it three times now with three different churches. Highly recommended. It, it could change your life. And, and you can get that information just on the ACNA website. E100, essential 100 verses in the Bible or stories in the Bible. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you came and you saved us. You're still coming to save us. You will continue to come to save us. Thank you for that great love. Help us to love like that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.